G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. Age Abuse and Justice started as short videos published on YouTube. I did 15 cases in video format, but it took much longer to record and edit, so gradually I eased out of videos to focus on the podcast. It also allowed me to do cases in more detail. I'm now adding the audio from those video recordings to be available on the podcast channel as well. Please excuse the bad audio, these are made from when I was first learning how to use this equipment so it gets pretty dicey. So this is one of those video recordings. The videos are still available on YouTube if you'd like to check them out. You can search for Age Abuse and Justice or you could look on the New South Wales Legal Aid podcast channel. But I'll also include the links for this case in the notes below. So on to the case. John Spencer Buttress was a loud, excitable man given to hand gestures and shouting. He worked as a labourer in quarries and his nickname was Rocker. John was illiterate, he couldn't read or write and he had very little business experience. He owned a cottage in Maroubra where he lived with his wife. They had one son together, whose name was also John Spencer Buttress, uh, but John was not close with his son. In 1930, John ceased work when the nearby quarry shut down. Also in that year, his wife became ill. Mary Elizabeth Johnson was a wife and mother of three. Her husband ran a photography studio in Sydney and they had a house together in Rose Bay. Mary was related to Mrs Buttress very distantly but she visited Mrs. Buttress while she was ill and she even arranged for her to see a doctor. On the 9th of December, 1930, Mrs. Buttress died. Soon after his wife's death, John arranged for his son and daughter-in-law to come and live with him. But the situation didn't last long. He got into a fight with his daughter-in-law and they moved out before Christmas. He then tried to arrange for his stepson, Amson, to come and live with him with his wife but they didn't agree to it. Nevertheless, in January 1931, John made a will, which left everything in his estate to Amson's child. Not long after, he went to visit his sister, Mrs Job, who lived in Melbourne. And in February, he made another will, which left all of his estate to his sister, Mrs Job. He didn't stay with her long either, and he returned to the cottage. He ended up renting out the cottage, but he kept one of the rooms for himself. During February and March, he visited Mary Johnson and her family quite often, almost every day, and they provided him a lot of support around this time. So much so that in March, Mary took John to her solicitor and he made another will which left all of his estate to Mary. Around this time, John was having trouble with the people who were renting his property. Uh, There was a lot of arguments and it even got violent, and it was the Johnsons who helped him get these people evicted. In April 1931, Mary took John to her solicitor again, and this time it was to sign a transfer. The transfer was to gift Mary the cottage. So basically, John transferred the cottage to Mary. The arrangement was that John would transfer the property to Mary and she would take care of him for the rest of his life. The reason for the transfer was that John wanted to cut his son out of his will. So even though John had not made a new will which gave everything to Mary, he was worried that his son could contest the estate and still get the property. So to avoid that, he decided to transfer the property to Mary. 
They spoke with the clerk at the office. The clerk asked John, are you selling the property to Mary? And John said, no, I'm giving it to her. When the clerk asked him why, he said, because she was a good support to my wife and I've always been fond of her. So the property was transferred. At the time of the transfer, John was 67 years old. His wife had been dead for only about four months and he did not receive any independent legal advice. What do I mean when I say independent legal advice? It's a phrase that's thrown about quite a lot. Basically, the solicitor they went and saw was Mary's solicitor. Uh, the solicitor was paid to advise Mary and to act in Mary's best interest. John should have had a separate solicitor that was paid by John, employed only by John, so that his, the solicitor's obligation would have been to give advice to John and to act in John's best interest. If he had had an independent solicitor acting for him, he might very well have been warned of some of the risk of these arrangements. So even though he's transferring property with this promise that Mary would care for him for the rest of his life, what happens if Mary died or is otherwise unable to provide that care? What happens if she just otherwise goes back on her agreement? Or what happens if she provides a level of care that he doesn't think is sufficient? So these are some of those questions that the solicitor could have asked if he had one acting for him. Something people might not know is that when you sign a transfer form, there's a line that says consideration. So what was the property transferred in exchange for? And normally you just put in the purchase price. So if you're purchasing a property for $650,000, consideration $650,000. And in this case, because it was a gift, consideration was no noted down to be natural love and affection. After the transfer, the Johnsons spent a bit of money doing up the property, repairing it, and they arranged for new tenants to move in. Even though John had transferred and gifted the money to Mary, though, he still insisted that he receive the rent. Not long after the new tenants moved in, John moved in with Mary and her family, but he only stayed with them for a little while. And it wasn't long until he moved to a property in Mount Victoria that was owned by Mary's daughter. He lived at that property in a tent and he did work on the property, digging, digging out rocks and clearing it for no pay. And he did that for about three years until his death. So while John was living in a tent on this property at Mount Victoria, he seemed to have some doubts. And he did say to some people, the Johnsons wanted his Maroubra property, but they weren't going to get it, which seems to indicate that he didn't quite understand what had happened with the transfer. In 1932, he did another will, this time leaving everything to his niece, Mrs. Hart. In 1934, when he was taken to hospital, he called upon Mrs. Hart and he gave her a copy of the will. On the 1st of May, 1934, John Spencer Buttress died. Now, this case was brought by the administrator of John's estate, his son. So his son took this matter to court in order to get the cottage property brought back into the estate. Because as you'll remember, John basically didn't really have anything else in his estate. The cottage was the main asset. So his son was seeking to get that brought back into the estate. The court had to look at whether this transaction had been entered into voluntarily. And what they're looking at there is not just that John went into that office and he wasn't, you know, shanghaied into it. He wasn't being pressured. He went there willingly and he signed the transfer. But what the court's looking at is those relationships of influence 
that can sometimes override someone's free will. So in this case, what they were looking at is that John was in his late 60s. He had recently lost his wife. He had no one else to care for him, and Mary Johnson provided him with a lot of care. He was incredibly dependent upon him. He was illiterate. He didn't get independent legal advice, and he transferred his house, which was not only his only asset, but it was also his only source of income because he'd lost his job the year before, and he basically survived off the rent that the property brought in. So the court was looking at that relationship and the question was they asked was, did she have so much influence on him? Was this relationship so important that the transfer itself might have been said to be done by under undue influence? And ultimately, the court decided that it had. So they said that the transfer was done by undue influence and they set it aside so that the Marugra cottage came back into John's estate to be distributed through his will or otherwise. Mary disagreed with this decision and she appealed it all the way to the High Court of Australia, but she was unsuccessful. Those of you with an attention to detail might have noticed that um, I've said the administrator of the estate is John's son. And that might have raised some queries because his last will left everything to his niece, Mrs Hart. So how did his son become a part of this? Well, at the time that John gave Mrs Hart a copy of his last will, she read it and she actually argued with him and she wasn't happy with him for cutting out his son and she tried to convince him to redo the will. John didn't agree to it, though. So after his death, Mrs Hart gave up all her rights to the estate and she gave it over to the son anyway. And that's how the son was able to bring this legal action to try to get the cottage back into the estate. On first view, you might be looking at this and thinking that Mary Johnson is a terrible person that took advantage of this poor old man not long after his wife died. And you might be saying, hooray, that she doesn't get to keep the property. After all, only four months after his wife died, Mary took John to see her solicitor to sign a will leaving her everything. And then she took him there again to get the property transferred to her. And then she relegated him to the side of a mountain to live in a tent and toil for no pay. So maybe rightly so, terrible person. But I want you to also consider another side of this. After John's wife died, he needed someone to care for him. And he couldn't afford to pay someone and he didn't have a lot in assets. Basically, the only thing was his estate, which he could leave in his will. And you can almost see the reasoning behind him changing his will so often as he offered that as an incentive. He tried to get his son to care for him and then his stepson, but unfortunately both of those didn't work out. And so finally, the only person he really had left was Mary Johnson. And she did care for him and provide him a friend, someone he could go and visit and talk to. Mary Johnson also wasn't new in his life. It wasn't that she just came in out of the blue after the death of his wife to take advantage of him. She had known him for more than 20 years and she had been providing assistance while his wife was ill and arranging medical care for her. So this wasn't some stranger taking advantage of an old man. This, one, some, this was someone that he already had an existing relationship with. John also wanted to disinherit his son. You could see that in the fact that he did the first will, leaving everything to Amson's 
child. The second will, leaving everything to his distant sister. And then the third will, leaving everything to Mary Johnson. The gift to Mary Johnson actually makes sense because if, while he was not close with family members, he was close with her. And it had the effect of leaving nothing to his son. And then once he got that idea that his son could still challenge his estate and still get the property, then he transferred the property to her as well. And he transferred it to her on the promise that she would look after him for the rest of his life. And to a certain extent, she did. So he was moved to this mountainside, which was her daughter's property. And he didn't pay rent to live there. And it was his wish to live there. He wanted to move to this property. And yes, he originally lived in a tent, but that was also his wish. And they did build him a shack to live in. They also arranged for the neighbours to provide him with milk and to send and receive letters on his behalf. They, Mary, sent him clothes and necessities, and she also sent him all of the rent from the, from the cottage at Maroubra. So even though the cottage was in her name, she was still giving him the rent from it. John was not entirely cut off. He would often visit Mary and her family, and they would sometimes visit him as well. So let's revisit that decision I asked you to consider at the start of this and the decision that the court made. Was it discrimination that made the court come to the decision they did? Because John wasn't the most intelligent man, because he wasn't literate, because he was prone to shouting and gesticulating, and because he wasn't business savvy, does that mean he didn't have the right to decide what happened with his own property? The court focused a lot on the fact that John wasn't able to read and write. But I think they put too much emphasis on that. Because even though John wouldn't have been able to read the transfer form itself, he still knew what he was signing. And he knew that he was gifting his property for no money and only the promise that Mary would look after him. And he did it voluntarily. So he didn't really need to read the form itself. So far as his illiteracy comes into it, it does show that he was more dependent on Mary because he relied on her to read and write on in his behalf. And later on, once he moved to Victoria, he relied on the neighbours to read and write on his behalf. But it also was, it was Mary and his family that he was writing to and that he was receiving letters from. And it was them acting on his behalf that allowed him to maintain family relationships where otherwise he wouldn't have been able to. Even if Mary Johnson did have a lot of influence over John's actions, if his primary aim was to disinherit his son, he had the right to try to do that. And it does seem to be a strong aim given the many times he changed his will, the fact that he didn't make a will leaving it to his son at all, and then the transfer of the property. It does show a strong intention not to leave the cottage to his son. And yet the effect of the court's decision is that the cottage goes to the son. And it seems to go against John's wishes. So one thing to consider is whether the court, in striving to uphold a higher standard of protecting people in vulnerable relationships from making unfair bargains, have they then forgotten to consider that John was an individual and regardless of his level of literacy and intelligence, he was still capable of making decisions for himself about what happened to his property?
in fighting to protect vulnerable people so that they're not taken advantage of, we have to always be careful that we don't take it a step too far and hinder on their own rights to make decisions for themselves, whether or not those decisions are ones we agree with. So that was my case study for today. Unfortunately, it was a very long one, but I hope you enjoyed it. I hope, I hope it gave you a lot to think about and I hope you join me for the next one.